National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. And don't forget to thank a cop. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Law Matters on 1030 KVOI, Trusted Local News and Talk. My name is Darren, and I'm filling in for Sherry today. I'm a retired trooper and a big proponent and uh, support the blue a lot. So I uh, finally get my chance. I've always said uh, that I've had a face for radio, so here I am. So uh, our first guest this morning uh, is going to be Hal Kempfer. Uh, he's the CEO of Global Risk Intelligence Planning. He's a retired Marine, Semper Fi Marine, and uh, he's contracted by the U.S. government, and he's going to talk about... Uh, Give us an update on uh, what's going over in the Gaza Air- Israel area. So, uh, Hal, good morning. Morning, Darren. I uh, hope you're having a good morning. It's uh, there's a lot going on over there. Uh, as the uh, news just uh, talked about, the uh, Rafah Gate in the south of uh, of uh, the Gaza Strip has been opened for a period of time. Not sure how long that will last. Uh, there is aid flowing in for Palestinians, uh, at least into southern Gaza Strip for right now. Uh, also, uh, the uh, French this morning uh, jumped in and reaffirmed that the hospital that was bombed, the Palestinian hospital up in Gaza City, uh, that that has sparked you know protests around the world, uh, that it was actually hit by a Palestinian rocket, it was not an Israeli airstrike. Uh, they also disputed the number of people killed. They said that the Palestinian number was a little bit high, which, frankly, historically is not surprising. Uh, the Palestinians have a proclivity to uh, to exaggerate things like that. And um, basically, Israel is poised all around. Uh, we don't know when they're going in. Uh, it is, that is truly up there. It's likely they may postpone it because of the other things going on. Uh, also yesterday, two Americans, uh, dual national, dual citizenship, uh, Israeli Americans, but two Americans were released, a mother and her daughter, teenage daughter. Uh, the first time that's been accomplished, that was an agreement uh, or negotiation that was using the Qataris, where Hamas has an interest office and representation. And they basically were the interlocutors, if you will, that, that worked with the U.S. and, to some degree, the Israelis. And they were released yesterday. They went to the border. Israel picked them up. They're currently being repatriated with family. Uh, but usually in these cases, uh, I'm not sure what Israel's plans are, but the U.S., we kind of have a protocol for hostages where we take them through a process because there's just no other way to describe what they went through than a very traumatic experience. And so we do a it's kind of generically a PTSD uh, process where we kind of work them through what happened so that they can more easily reintegrate back into normal life. So those are some of the big things. Uh, anything specific you were looking at? Well, do we know how many American hostages are still uh, being held over there? Yeah, it's, uh, I want to say it's about, 20-some, I believe, is uh, is the latest number I saw. It was going back and forth. It got up to about, I think someone said 30 at one point, which seemed a little bit high. Uh, also keep in mind, they are dual nationals for the most part. Uh, most of them have dual citizenship. I think there's a few that are just U.S. citizens. Um, 
And so both the U.S. and Israel have a negotiating position, obviously. Uh, Israel has an overall negotiating position in all of this. And, uh, and whereas the U.S. is basically working uh, as a third party, uh, trying to bring this together to get them released, um, Israel is the one that actually controls the ground. Now, there's one thing I should mention. Uh, Hamas has talked about releasing prisoners, and there has been discussion of if they keep releasing, and the discussion is mostly on the Hamas side, that if they keep releasing prisoners, that will forestall an Israeli assault. Now, they've got 200 prisoners or 200 hostages. If they release two hostages a day, that would be over three months where they're releasing hostages. And I just don't see any way that Israel's going to sit there for three months and, and not go in. Uh, so uh, Hamas may think that's a, a, a strategy. I just don't think that's going to work. Um, they might be able to delay it for a little while. The U.S. is obviously saying, you know, let's try and get the hostages back. That's become the President Biden's kind of shifted his tone a little bit to put more emphasis on getting the hostages back. But I just don't see the Israelis sitting there for three months uh, while they incrementally you know, release one or two hostages every day. Oh, thank you. So uh, I know my wife's uh, got a friend that just got back from Israel. She, they were tourists over there. They were having trouble getting out of the, the country, uh, and they finally have. Do we know if there's still, uh, like, tourists over there that are struggling to get back and out of the country to uh, back to safety? I think they got most of them out. There may be a few. I have not heard a final number on that. What I will say is they have charter flights that uh, are were, uh, State Department charter flights. They're able to get out on certain commercial flights, not U.S. commercial flights. I think United American, some others had canceled all their flights. But they're able to fly from uh, Israel to Athens. So it was a pretty short leg. And then a, uh, a U.S. cruise ship actually went in there, and they loaded up Americans on the cruise ship and took them over to Cyprus. And I think that leg is going to continue as well. So it looks to me like most of the Americans who were trapped there uh, have gotten out, but I've not heard a final number yet. All right. Well, we appreciate the update, and I uh, always appreciate you having it on this show. All right. Well, thanks, Darren. Good to be with you. Thank you, Hal. That was Hal Kempfer, CEO of Global Risk Intelligence Planning. So uh, our main guest today, we have two guests from Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. We have the base commander, Colonel Scott Mills, and we have the chief master sergeant, who is the base command chief, Mike Becker. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Darren. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you, sir. So we're going to talk about how uh, Davis-Monthan and Tucson and the community uh, work together and some of the things we can do and learn a little bit about uh, our neighbors down there. So um, what would you like to start off with for for an update on the base? Well, I'll tell you the the one thing you mentioned there in terms of having a connection with the outside community, that's one of the the primary things that that Chief Becker and I work on every day, and that's making sure that we have a connection with Tucson. The Tucson doesn't look at Davis-Monthan as an add-on or an extra component, but sees it as a a living, breathing component that, uh, that they work with every day to have just a strong community overall. And we do that by outreach, by things like this, by uh, developing relationship with various civic leaders so that they understand the nature of Davis-Monthan, where we are, where we're going, and the intent to create just a the best connection possible. Well, that's cool. So uh, I know that Davis-Monthan is uh, part of the Tucson Young Professionals Program. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the Tucson Young Professionals Program is a program designed for 
obviously young professionals from 18 to 45 who are looking to develop their careers, to develop uh, professionally. Uh, it gives them opportunities to not only network within that same group, but they also bring in outside speakers. What they've done with Davis Monthan is they've uh, there have been some gracious donations that have allowed airmen from the base of all ranks uh, that fit within that age group to go join and participate in these monthly dinners where they have the opportunity to meet other young professionals and realizing that because you're in the military doesn't mean you're on a different professional track than someone who is developing a career in finance or developing a career in a medical profession. It's the same steps you go along the way, and a lot of that starts with with networking, with understanding where we can grow as professionals, what things we should be studying in terms of, of leadership or technical expertise, and how we can grow as an individual. Uh, those airmen get to go and participate in that, and we've had just such great feedback from our airmen who've, who've partaken in that. They've met young professionals. They've they've had the ability to not only meet new friends and, and understand those things, but also to meet the speakers they bring in and develop professionally. Oh, that's wonderful. How many, uh, do you know how many airmen you have uh, participating in this program? Right now we're in at around 10 airmen and we're growing it. We expect by the by the springtime to have upwards of 50 or 100. Outstanding. And, and one thing we've added to the program uh, recently is is a bigger component for our military spouses. That's, that's one of the things that often gets overlooked. Um, you know, we serve, we wear a uniform, we're very visible, um, but our spouses and our families kind of serve as well. And it's really difficult for a lot of our spouses as we move every year. You know, the colonel and I, we have our careers. Um, but our spouses have to kind of pick up and, and reinvent themselves every few years. And so they've, there's a component of that. There's some leadership. Um, Helena Riggins is the membership experience director for Tucson Young Professionals. She's a military spouse herself. Um, so she, it's, it's very passionate for them to, to get our spouses involved. Well, that sounds wonderful because, I mean, it, this sounds like they can use this to either advance their career in the military or prepare themselves when they transition back to civilian life. So it sounds, uh, sounds like a great program. It is. We're, we're very beneficial for those uh, the spots that they've given us within that club and the ability to broaden out, just like Chief Becker said, to not only our military members but their spouses as well. Well, that's great. Is there a way that local businesses can be involved and uh, get involved in that kind of uh, program? Well, the Tucson Young Professionals look at other businesses to provide uh, speakers and folks to come in to provide that expertise. So absolutely. Uh, Chief mentioned the primary contact there. Uh, her name's Helena Riggin. She's the Membership Experience Director for Tucson Young Professionals. And if you look up Tucson Young Professionals, uh, the email for her is actually just her first name, Helena. So H-E-L-E-N-A at TucsonYoungProfessionals.com. Great way to reach out to her and look at different ways that uh, local businesses can participate. That's great. That's great. We love to have uh, increased those connections with that. So Same. That's great. Yeah. So uh, one of my uh, favorite planes that are out there, jets out there, is the A-10. And, uh, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of jokes out there about the that uh, particular plane, but uh, <laughs> I think I've heard them all. The uh, the best for me is that uh, people believe the the aircraft stalls when it fires the gun, <laughs> or that it just slows down incredibly when it fires it. Neither of which is true. It's an incredibly powerful gun, uh, and incredibly accurate, but it doesn't affect the flight characteristics at all. Yeah, they <laughs> they made a gun and built a plane around really, it. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I hear they're going away. So the Air Force's game plan is to uh, retire the A-10 over the next few years. It's uh, pending congressional approval for this year. davis Monthan will shut down one squadron during the calendar year of 24. Uh, those pilots and those maintainers are going to go off to fly the F-35, F-16, F-15, and other types of aircrafts across the, the Air Force. Um, we plan for that each year. 
the the overall divestment is part of a massive kind of recapitalization and modernization effort within the Air Force to make sure that that we're ready for emerging challenges uh, across the globe. Stay up to date with everybody else. We do. Yeah, we need to. So how do the pilots feel about giving up that uh, that gun? Well, I've, <laughs> I started flying the A-10 in 2001, shortly before September 11th, and you know I've deployed multiple times with it and i will tell you there's nothing like your first airplane there's just not and there's a there's an attachment we feel to the mission the mission of close air support the close air support mission is um it's such a historically proud mission because it enables our ground troops to go and take territory and control terrain and do all the things you need to to end a conflict and the way we teach it is to remind our pilots that you're not here to be a pilot you're not here to do things high up in the sky. What you're here to do is to think about that young soldier, that young Marine, or that young sailor on the ground with a rifle. You're there for that person. You're there to make sure that they come home. Uh, and that's the way we, from the very beginning, from the very first flight, we talked to them about that perspective. So we as a community, or the A-10 community, feels an overwhelming attachment to our ability to help other forces. Uh, as we look forward, all of our folks kind of look at it and go, we know we're going to keep doing that. We are going to continue to be a great force for those other forces and continue to take that that sort of mindset into other assets as well. I think that uh, that close air support is kind of why the you know, the grunts on the ground are, are favorable to that, uh, have a piece of their heart there for that. So, uh, But uh, no, are the other jets that are coming in and replacing that going to be uh, able to do that kind of close air support? Uh, in the same manner or just just going to have to shift how they do that too? Well, the A-10 was designed specifically for close air support. In fact, the the upgrades uh, that started out in the early 2000s made it such a, just an incredible platform for that mission. Some of the other assets that, uh, that are out there to fly were built f- with other missions in mind, but they're still capable of doing close air support. And what it comes down to oftentimes is not the aircraft itself, but the pilot and the crew that are doing the mission. And they they train so much at doing these missions and taking care of those young soldiers, sailors, and uh, Marines that it doesn't matter that the airplane is different, that support is there because the person performing the mission cares so much about it. And that's, that is something that, the, that no one community can hold on to that is theirs. It's, it's Air Force-wide. We, when we fly, we fly knowing that what we do impacts everyone around us, whether it's someone I'm flying next to or the folks that are on the ground. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know those new jets can definitely fly low because I've been buzzed. So, yes. uh, and that that definitely wakes you up. They can absolutely. So, uh, I'm I'm the older generation, and I remember the C one thirty, and uh, those those were the good times. But uh, I understand the MC one thirty is now going to be. It is the so the there's actually a lot of changes with the C one thirty. When you you say C one thirty today, uh, like you said, my dad flew C one thirties, and uh, the C one thirty of today is just a different aircraft. We have on base our HC one thirties. Those are C one thirties aimed at the rescue mission. So imagine an isolated personnel, whether that's a a small squad of Marines that have become separated from the the group or a downed pilot, we have entire echelons of forces that are aimed at finding, protecting, and retrieving those individuals. And the HC-130s we have on Davis-Monthan are focused specifically on that. But we also have a uh, a group on base, the Electronic Combat Group, that has the EC-130. Now, the EC-130 is aimed at the electromagnetic spectrum and our ability to use and exploit that to the max extent possible. That aircraft is actually being replaced right now by the EC-37. And then the 
mode that you mentioned, the MC-130, that's more of a special operations aircraft that comes in and provides fuel uh, both in the air and on the ground to forces to allow them to kind of base closer to where we need to be. We're, we're not, uh, the timeline on that is fairly fuzzy, but in the next few years, you'll see those start to arrive at davis Mountain. So these uh, these aircraft for down here that you have, they uh, I, I know that you're uh, uh, on uh, some of the stuff you have is rescue and attack is kind of your primary mission here. Is That's that absolutely right. what I understand? So so the talk to us about the rescue st- uh, type stuff you do on the, oh, the wow. mission, the how you train, uh, what you're trained in do in the rescue missions. Well, the the basic concept again is if someone is on their own, and maybe it's a group of people, maybe it's a small group of folks, but they've become separated from the friendly element. Uh, that can happen when a a pilot or a crew jumps out of an airplane and they find themselves in the ocean, or they find themselves in enemy territory where they can't just have freedom of motion. They can't pick up their cell phone and call home or, or order an Uber and and get right back to where they need to be. Our job is to go out to first find them, second to protect, and then to bring them back. And we do that with uh, forces, both forces that are trained to be, you know, our guardian angels, folks that go out and actually stand next to that person, provide emergency medical care, uh, all the way back to our command and control elements that are designed to pick up signals that those people can emit and say, here's where I am, here's my condition. And that dictates to us how fast do we need to get there. If someone says, you know, hey, I'm I'm in a, in a hillside country, everything's great, then we can be a little more deliberate in our timing. We can think through uh, how best to go get them. If someone says, hey, I'm injured, or I have enemy personnel very close by, well, that changes the game. Then it becomes a little bit more of a, we need to get there right now. And we have a variety of different aircraft that do that. Our HC-130s and our HH-60s here on base, as, long, as well as our Guardian Angels, form kind of the composite of our rescue team. Historically, the A-10 has been very, very close to that as well. We perform a, uh, a role that's near and dear to all of our hearts. We call it the Sandy Roll. Uh, we took that term from Vietnam when they used to fly with the Sandy call sign. And Sandy means one thing to anybody that hears it. That means we're coming to find someone and we're bringing them home. Other assets have, have pitched into that as well. So, But the the primary, when we say rescue and attack at DM, with the attack, I'm talking about the A-10s, about all our maintainers, all our support and all our pilots that make that happen. When we say rescue, we're talking about that entire team. So from the PJs to the HC-130 pilots and crew members, uh, all the way to the HH-60s as well. That's great. That's uh, so very specialized uh, units on that base is uh, is what I understand. Is Absolutely, highly trained uh, to do exactly that mission because there's uh, there's a constant uh, throughout conflict. If you look back over the last three thousand years, there's been uh, two things that have always been required. People have always needed to be attacked, and there's always been someone who needed rescued. That's great. It's uh, no no man left behind, that's right. so that's that's important. So. And there's a component to this that that often gets overlooked. Um, our rescue teams here participate heavily in the civilian search and rescue um, world. There's a coordination center. Uh, we rescued a, a it was a, a crew member from a, a vessel out at sea, um, critically injured. We we went out there and got him. It was a 20 hour flight, multiple air refuelings for our helicopters, but they rescued that person and saved their life. Um, we look for lost hikers. Uh, recovered one of our own lost airmen uh, after a, a lake incident. So yeah, they're they're the best in the world at what they do. Good. What's the what's your range uh, for for that from here? I mean, I I know you deploy to places too, but we what's do. your range for for these kind of missions? Well, I'll tell you the the missions he's talking about. We went over eight hundred miles into the Pacific Ocean to retrieve him. That's part of the the benefit of that HC one thirty. You can actually refuel those helicopters. 
Uh, so it, it vastly expands expands the range there. But about 800 miles is about what we've done before, That's and that's not our limit. We've gone further. So several units integrating together and working as partners. To Absolutely. Do, to it's an entire rescue happen. team. Ah, that's outs- that's yeah. outstanding. So tell us about the special ops you have there. So what kind of special operations? Uh, well, the, the special operations is the expectation in a few years. The Air Force's game plan is to stand up a power projection wing. That'll be a component of Air Force Special Operations Command. That hasn't happened yet. That is the Air Force's game plan to remake or add to the com- all the components that we have at Davis Mountain Air Force Base. So this power projection wing will be much like some of the other components that we have on base we have we're very lucky to have a lot of great mission partners across davis mountain uh in addition to being the installation commander and command chief we're the 355th wing now the 355th wing is the rescue and attack but we also have uh, major general pettis who's the commander of 12th air force air force's southern which is the air force's component force uh u.s southcom we have customs and border patrol We have the electronic combat group that we talked about. These are all components outside of the wing, but on the installation. And this new addition will be the power projection wing coming from Air Force Special Operations Command. And the game plan right now is for them to bring not only those MC-130s we talked about before, uh, but various special tactics squadrons as well, which contain our combat controllers. Uh, Another aspect of our our AFSPEC wars, what we call them, our Air Force Special uh, Specialized Combatants. And the uh, other aircraft include the Air Tractor, um, and the the last one, the air tractor is the, the civilian nomenclature. I keep forgetting the military, but it's the OA-1K uh, that's also coming here. Okay, so uh, we've heard about that air tractor, and uh, so what is what is that air tractor going to? Com- uh, what is tell us about it? Well, it's a it's it's a sensor platform, so it provides a lot of electronics uh, or signal collection and distribution to other members of the team. Um, and also has a great loiter time, so it can stay airborne for a very long period of time, allowing a, a persistent coverage for information flow across the battlefield. Okay. And uh, how many of those are going to be? I'm not sure, actually. You know, when they when they bring a squadron, squadron sizes can vary based on the, the expectation of how far they'll go. Being Air Force Special Operations Command, uh, I have to imagine they'll be going all over the world. Um, so there'll probably be quite a few. The lucky thing is, for anyone who's been out to Davis Monthan recently, we have a very large ramp, and we have a lot of room for all this growth that's going to come here. That's outstanding. Good deal. Yeah, the official program is the Air Force is going to buy up to 75 of these airplanes. Again, it's a multi-role airplane. The boss talked about you know the SIGINT collection, but it's also going to be capable of some uh, combat air support, close air support capabilities as well. Outstanding. So, rumor has it that there's going to be a golf course built on Davis Monthan. <laughs> the so there's good news bad news. The you know a few years ago when the decision was made to turn off the golf course uh it created quite a wildlife preserve. We have uh we've a lot of of great things that are that are now living on base. Um we've had a lot of interest from the community at restarting that. Uh, a lot of folks who were helping us find ways to not only have efficient water use and make it so that it is economically and, and environmentally friendly, but also allow folks from off base a way to come on base to play, even if you wouldn't normally have base access. Uh, the the unfortunate news is that with all of the changes happening across Davis Mountain in the next few years, we've we've put that on hold to wait to see where we need to build because there's going to be growth. Uh, Air Force Special Operations Command that we mentioned coming here, that space is actually great for an expanded use in terms of other buildings being there. So uh, 
I guess it's bad news, bad news. The bad news is we did shut it down. The, the other bad news is that I don't think it's coming back in the next five years. After that, after we've we've sort of settled Air Force Special Operations Command here, somewhere in the 2028, 2029 realm, we may relook at that and think, can we still have a golf course with this growth of all the buildings across the base? All right. I think we're ready to, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be back to Law Matters on KBOI 1030 The Voice. LawMatters1030.org is a nonprofit that needs your support in El Tour de Tucson, either by riding a bike or walking in the 5K. To support us while we support law enforcement, please go to LawMatters1030.org support page to sign up. We'll see you there. Law Matters Live Show works hard at keeping you informed on current issues from all law enforcement agencies, including any changes in both the tax and mortgage loan rules. I host the show as a volunteer. My real job is working for a mortgage broker with over 20 resources in residential, commercial, jumbo, as well as a reverse mortgage company whose new rule is offering tax-free money to those 55 and older, qualifying for up to $4 million. If you want to learn more, call me after the show at 520-310-9900. This is JL reminding you the City of Tucson election is vote by mail only. Ballots will be mailed October 11th. Please look for your ballot, fill it out, and drop it in the mail by October 31st. In-person ballot drop-off locations are listed on the county recorder's website. Let your voice be heard. Vote for a cleaner, safer Tucson. LawMatters1030.org is a nonprofit that needs your support in El Tour de Tucson, either by riding a bike or walking in the 5K. To support us while we support law enforcement, please go to LawMatters1030.org support page to sign up. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Law Matters on KBOI 1030, The Voice, the trusted local news and talk. Uh, we're back talking with Colonel Scott Mills, the base commander for Davis Monthan, and uh, Chief Master Sergeant, the uh, base command chief, Mike Becker. So, welcome back, sir. So, everybody loves the air show. <laughs> when is our next air show? So, the the good news is we had our first air show post COVID last March, and it was absolutely incredible. I really hope that uh, that your listeners and and really everyone in Tucson had the opportunity to come out. We we opened the gates, we had the Thunderbirds, we had some amazing demonstrations, uh, including a combat search and rescue demonstration. We were just talking about about finding someone. They were able to show that to the crowd and then we had the entire ramp at Davis Mountain covered with aircraft and businesses and and it was just a such a great success. Now the that expenditure of of energy oftentimes it's it's a lot for one base. So we have a relationship with Luke, Luke Air Force Base, where we tr- kind of trade off. And one year, we will host an air show, and the next year, Luke Air Force Base does it. So while the next davis Monthan Air Force Base air show won't be until March of 2025, <coughs> Luke Air Force Base is actually having one. It's called Luke Days. And you can look it up if you look up uh, Luke Days, Luke Air Force Base, March 23rd to 24th of uh, 2024. Uh, they're going to host a installation-wide air show, and they're going to have the Thunderbirds. They'll have the F-35 demonstration team and just put on a really great show. That sounds great. I missed uh, I missed our last one, but I'm really looking forward to that other one. Oh, I've heard so many wonderful things about that. Uh, you know, I've, I'm new to the area, and I, I always thought living near an Air Force base would be um, loud, noisy, <laughs> difficult with the jets going over. But, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those every time they fly over uh, – 
it's just like you just pause and kind of look and it, it's kind of in awe and i i was going down the road the other day and uh going down oracle up north a little ways there almost to catalina and uh there were two a10s for, uh flying together just kind of low and slow <laughs> right down along there and it just yeah. i was just in awe you know like so many things you know that's our freedom that's mm. that's a representation of our of our country and and uh, our appreciation for everything you folks are doing down there. So, well, what's amazing is you know after doing it for twenty something years, uh, I still routinely almost cause traffic accidents. When I see aircraft fly over, it's a it's an unwritten rule. You have to look up. You've got to idea it. What is it doing? Uh, oftentimes, uh, you find yourself critiquing where they're flying or how they're flying. And uh, every time I see someone, especially right around Davis Monthan, we're we're poised to see them as they're in kind of their final turn coming around to land and. If you're listening closely enough, you can hear the engine, the way the engine's moving, if it's pitching up or pitching down. And uh, that's my first thought immediately goes to, well, you're playing with the throttles too much. You just need to set them. And, oh, nose is a little bit too low, or he's banked up just a little bit too much. Here's what I would do in this situation. And uh, it's in, uh, it's, it's like an unstoppable force. You have to do it every time, and it's, uh, it's great. Yeah, for me, it's comforting. Um, so Colonel Mills and I kind of come from similar backgrounds. We both grew up. Um, our fathers were in the Air Force. I've lived on military bases, uh, Air Force installations around the world. Uh, the sound of freedom gets a little bit probably overplayed sometimes, but truly that's what it is for me. I, I love these airplanes. I love watching them. I love listening to them. They never bother me at all. That's cool. So it's, uh, you've both been in for quite a while. You're, you've reached uh, you know very high, high ranks in the military. So uh, for those of us, there's several that don't understand the military, don't uh, understand rank and stuff. Let's, let's start with you, uh, so uh, again, Mike Becker, I've uh, been in the Air Force for about 24 and a half years. Um, I like to say I've been without a military ID card for nine days of my life. <laughs> I turned 21. Uh, my father took away my dependent ID card and I got off the bus at Lackland Air Force Base for basic training um, nine days later. So I grew up around the world. Um, I gen- joined the Air Force myself to be uh, an explosive ordnance disposal technician. So it's the the bomb squad for the military. Um, I came in in 1999, kind of, uh, we were still dealing with the peace dividend from, you know, winning the Cold War and, and the fall of the Soviet Union, and, and things were actually pretty calm in the world. And uh, so I joined the Air Force thinking that the most exciting thing I would ever get to do would, would maybe, you know, be drinking coffee at the end of a flight line, and maybe one of our fighter pilots would come in with a hung missile, and, you know, I'd get to take care of that. Um, 9-11 happened. Uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom happened a couple of years later. And we became a, a joint force that was invested in, in fighting the ground wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And the Air Force Explosive Ordnance Disposal community was a, was a huge part of that. We were the very first Air Force. Uh, we called them Joint Expeditionary Taskings, or in lieu of forces. We took over Army missions in Iraq um, starting at the beginning of 2005. So that's what I did uh, for about a decade. Uh, I felt like I was deployed or preparing to deploy the whole time. Um, moved around the world. I've, I've done this job uh, now. This is my second time I've kind of moved out of the EOD world into the command chief role. Previous to, to coming down to be on our team here at Davis Monthan, I was at Mount, Malmstrom Air Force Base in Great Falls, Montana, working on the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile uh, mission up there, which really opened my eyes to the what we do every day strategic deterrence-wise to, to kind of keep a cap on it. And that's a lot of things that, that kind of the American public and even those of us within the military don't really understand very well is that nothing works there is no operational plan there is no ability for for the united states military to project power anywhere um if nuclear deterrence is not 
on the table. Mm-hmm. If that fails, all is lost. So it's it was it was a it was an honor to be a part of that mission for a couple of years. Even bigger honor to come down here. Uh, still thankful that Colonel Mills um, hired me and allowed me and my family to come down and serve on this team. So no, uh, for those that aren't familiar with the military, we have there's two two types of military um, members. There's the enlisted and then there's the commissioned correct. officers. Yeah. So you're the highest ranking enlisted officer on the base, correct? I am. Yeah, I am the senior enlisted leader um, for the base. And it's cool. It's, it's, you know, I'm generally the only person in the room who literally cannot get promoted again. Uh, and there's an immense amount of freedom to that. <laughs> no, I love my, my entire job. I like to say there's, there's two people in this entire wing that work for me and all of us work for, for this gentleman sitting to my left. Um, and our entire existence is based on helping him get done what he wants to get done. So that's great. So let's talk about your career, Colonel. Yeah, it's uh, a <laughs> it's it's funny listening to Chief Becker tell his story and and uh, and seeing such the incredible parallels that I have between uh, the two of us because I, I also grew up in the military. My dad was a uh, was a C one thirty pilot, and he served for thirty years. And just I became used to the military lifestyle the the idea of moving every three years and. And moving to different schools and living in different countries, and uh, my parents have a great story of uh, when I came back from the Philippines. The my first grade teachers tried to hold me back, and they my parents had to go in and talk to them and figure out why would you know we've just moved from the Philippines, why in the world would you want to hold him back? And they said, well, he's got a he's got a really strange accent, and I had I had picked up a Tagalog accent from living in the Philippines, and I couldn't identify. Uh, I wanted to call a cow a mongoose. And uh, when they asked me what I would do if I were cold, I told them I would go outside. And so my parents had to explain to them, nope, he's just grown up uh, somewhere else in the tropics, and uh, he's he'll be fine. And luckily, they were at least close to right. But um, but the military lifestyle for us has just been, it's become the way that I'm used to living. And, and much like Chief Becker, I, you know, I, I drove away from Tinker Air Force Base directly to the Air Force Academy and uh, simultaneously had kind of the, both those ID cards that I uh, got to chop up one being my dependent ID card and very lucky to get into the A-10 uh, because of the mission set and the missions that we've talked about, the closer support, the combat search and rescue. That's the reason why I wanted to do this airplane. I wanted to, I wanted to serve someone that's doing a, another mission. I wanted to make sure that, that they were protected and taken care of. And that type of ideal has really shaped who I've become and the things that I've always wanted to do in the military. And I've been extremely lucky uh, or unlucky being that I started flying the A-10 right before September 11th, and much like Chief Becker, my and and really all of America, the kind of the world changed, and we, you know, we set the pace then for the next 20 years. I was able to deploy multiple times in the A-10. I was uh, uh, in Operation Iraqi Freedom. I was actually part of the Third Armored Cavalry as an A-10 pilot assigned as a battalion air liaison officer. Got to meet some of the closest friends I still have to this day. But being able to serve on the ground alongside our soldiers really taught me the the importance of of what we do as an entire joint team and the importance that we need to understand each other and understand the difference between, you know, an airman, a soldier, a sailor, and a Marine. But at the end of the day, that, that team, all those different sort of uh, components form one really amazing team. Uh, I got an opportunity to fly the F-35 at Nellis Air Force Base as well, um, both as in a test role in the weapons school and then finally as an aggressor, uh, which, you know, playing the bad guy in an F-35 was, uh, was a great opportunity as well. And then finally, being here at Davis Monthan, like Chief said, we, he and I look at it as though we have 6,000 folks inside the wing itself. We have 12,000 folks across the installation. He and I exist to make sure that every single one of them is taken care of, that they, 
that they you know understand their role and are resourced to do it. We have we have six words that uh, we tell them to live by every day. You know, with the six, the three of this is what you will have, what we will provide you. We call it respected, protected, connected. It's it's the environment you should live in. It's um, you know you should be able to show up every work to every day at work and know that you're respected, regardless of your rank, regardless of your position. Uh, you know, Major General Pettis, who's the senior ranking officer on the base. I will treat him with the same amount of respect as I will our brand new airman who, uh, 17 years old from Tulsa, Oklahoma, is actually living in our dorms right now. And he's, I will treat him with the same amount of respect. And when we talk about protected and connected, it's everyone should have an opportunity to be everything they can be at work. And everyone should feel connected to the person they're standing next to, to their leadership from their flight to their squadron, their group, all the way up to Chief Becker and I. And the way we look at it is it's oftentimes seen as an unachievable goal, but we want a connection with every single airman that's out there, every single one of the 12,000 people on the base, which we won't ever achieve that, but every day we try to make strides to make that happen. And I understand, uh, so part of making that uh, connection happen is uh, you'll make random visits throughout the base where, you know, when I was in the military a long time ago, if uh, if a full bird colonel... From, from the Marine Corps was uh, walked into to my shop. Uh, we'd all be just it. it that it's, was a bad day. It still happens that way. <laughs> we but, show up and people freak out a little bit, but it's it's great. It's it's really about the best thing we get to do. Um, like the boss uh, was talking offline earlier. You know, we love to surprise people when they're eating lunch. Um, sometimes they appreciate it. Sometimes they're like, "Hey, man, I wish the boss would just leave me alone so I could eat my lunch." But but it changes the culture. It, yeah. It's a cultural shift that. Uh, that that is in a good way to uh to like you said to have that uh that respected uh feeling that's right and, and to feel that they're they're a part of it and they're that they mean something to the command staff is that's that right and when you treat someone with respect an amazing thing happens is they recognize the fact that they were they should have been getting that all the time forever uh, i think i see it as kind of an unalienable human right that uh, we should treat everyone around us with just a basic level of respect. And oftentimes when you don't see that, what you see are some people who begin to believe that that's the way things are, that that, that is simply the way the world works. And uh, that's just not true. And when you treat someone with respect, what you get back is the understanding that I was always deserved that. And I can also put that back out into the world and I can treat everyone around me. And you can really change the nature and the culture of an organization, no matter how big or small, by a simple by simply treating people that way. It's amazing how fast that can catch fire. Yeah, that's great. So now you mentioned uh, you, uh, you're responsible for the whole base, which includes um, our the what I consider to be the most uh, behind-the-scenes hero, and that's the, the families of the, those that serve, especially when, you know, you both have deployed and, um, you know, families being left back home and stuff. Uh, let, talk, talk, talk to me about those those hidden behind the scenes heroes that are so important to the military well they they are they are the heroes they're the strength of every of every member of the the military the strength they find is oftentimes from their families and it's awful awful timely in terms of talking about this we actually have one of the largest deployments from davis mountain air force base going on right now uh upwards of 800 to 900 folks are deployed from davis mountain and with each one of those there is a special person a partner spouse a family that is staying here. And this deployment is going to take them from now through somewhere in the neighborhood of March or April of next year, which means missing kind of that holiday season, a time where uh, we generally see families come together and spending time together. And we're going to have two of the most important parts of that split apart. It's a very difficult time to go through as, as Chief Becker and I can both tell you, you know, being away from your family, 
during those times is, is hard. Even when you see it coming, even when you you're still surrounded by people that care and that want to be with you, it's it's impossible to understate the the emotional impact of not being with your family during times like that. It, uh, so we look to support those families as best we can. We have uh, a center on base called the Military and Family Readiness Center. It's actually just recently named the number one, we call it the MNFRC because we love acronyms, but the Military Family Readiness Center is the number one military and family readiness center in the Air Force. And they do an amazing job of taking care of um, of our folks. We have amazing teams from our, our integrated violence prevention folks as well provide just a safe area for people to be. In fact, today on Davis Mountain Air Force Base, they're doing a family movie night where they're going to show elementals at our base theater with popcorn and drinks and um, as a way to bring our families together and, and give them time to hang out. That's yeah. great. It's, it's really um, the commander of mine's number one priority. I mean, everything's a priority, but taking care of the folks that are, they're staying behind and supporting the mission while their, their military members go down range. Um, there is no more, more important job we have. We did a town hall this week. It was fairly well attended. We're hoping more come out uh, to the next one we're going to do. Um, we are a hundred percent committed to transparency and, and letting the spouses know exactly what's going on with their military members downrange um, and what kind of support they can expect from us. We oftentimes try to use social media to the max extent possible because it, you know, like you said, we uh, we are older than a lot of our airmen that are across the base, so we're not the best at social media. But luckily, we have an amazing public affairs team that helps us navigate those waters. And our primaries, um, while you're not going to find us on TikTok, you are going to find us on Instagram and Facebook. And so the Davis Monthan Air Force Base page, he and I will use that routinely to get messages out. We film videos to to try to talk directly to the airmen and uh, especially with our families. We try to provide as much outreach, and I look at it as it's our job to make sure the opportunity for that connection is there with those families and allow those families to use whatever means they're comfortable with, because sometimes people are not comfortable with stopping you on the street or, or sending you a direct email, but they can submit questions through different means. So he and I have a, we call it our, our it's an anonymous QR code that we post around the base. It's 100% anonymous, but you do a QR code, and he, he and I are the only people on the installation that can see it and we find that's great the last part that i'm i'm less proud of really is sometimes we just sort of stalk some of those pages some of the uh you know on-base residents uh folks that are the families on base they have great support networks and we oftentimes will try to read those to make sure there's not a family out there or a or a, a air force member that's in need of something that they're not getting so he and i will we'll see those comments and we'll quickly engage the team and go hey what is going on here let's find this out and uh, we've helped a lot of people that way. Well, it's important. I mean, it, you you call it stalking, but I mean, if you're not if you're not in touch or if you're not making the effort to seek out where the issues are, uh, you're hiding from them, and uh, you can't take care of them that yeah, way. So we see it as is you know kind of like the the modern version of the old smoke pit. You know, anybody that's been around you know the military or really anything, you get truth in the smoke pit. <laughs> we get truth from social media. It's not always a hundred percent truth. Uh, but it generally points us in the right direction, especially if there's a problem that's been kind of plaguing somebody for a while. We could see that stuff and we can intervene. And great. So uh, one of the other great things that uh, people hear about down here at Davis Monthan is the Heritage Flight. Oh, yeah. uh, Heritage Flight is uh, it's an amazing thing that we get to put on here. It's uh, It's a little bit different than an air show but then it's also very similar to an air show. So Heritage Flight is a air show. I'll, I'll say air show, and then I'll talk to why it's not exactly an air show, but we bring in uh, a lot of World War II era aircraft as well as some newer ones, some F-5s, 
and every single demonstration team in the Air Force will gather here at Davis Monthan Air Force Base. And what they're doing is they're making sure that they've got everything correct, that they are trained and certified to provide air shows, which is a very specialized type of air power. When you when you go to an air show and you see that, that is not the typical flying that a that a pilot will do or a crew member will take part of. It's very specialized and very controlled to make sure it's a safety for not only the pilots, but also for the folks watching on the ground. So Heritage, uh, it'll be every March. And so this year, March, I believe the first weekend, March of 2024, we'll bring all these assets in and we're going to train over the skies of Davis Monthan and or over the skies of Tucson. And while we don't open the base up to the public, normally during an air show, we open the gates, we set up parking, we get everyone standing out on the flight line to watch. We don't do that for Heritage because, again, the intent is to certify them in a little bit more, call it austere environment, where we don't have folks around them all the time. But we can't stop folks from just watching the air show. And I'll tell you, it's one of the most amazing air shows you'll see because it's it's our most frontline fighters today flying alongside World War II era aircraft. And there's there's opportunities. You know, if you do have base access, uh, you can come on base and watch from any of the parks, and that'll go on all day that first weekend in March. If you don't have base access, there's plenty of areas around Tucson. The The flight path of a lot of the demonstrations will be from Davis-Monthan, almost due north, directly to the mountain range, and then back around, back to Davis-Monthan. So really anywhere in that, uh, call it that Craycroft north-south line, if you can get close to that line, you're probably going to see a really great show here come March. That sounds great. Yeah, that's uh, that's just got to be a great sight to yes. see those uh, those old ones right next to the brand new ones and stuff. And uh, it is really neat to see. And then to talk with the pilots and how the you know the stick and rudder will change over time. You know, the I used to joke when transitioning from the A10 to the F35, and then back to the A10. You know, where the stick is has changed, and oftentimes I reach for it and it's not where I expected it to be. And um, but when you get down to talking to the pilots and the experiences they've had, it's amazing the similarities that have occurred for the last hundred years and the the way that we see flying and the way that the crew and the pilots are able to to work together to get done what they need to do. Those those things haven't changed. Those are sort of the universals of flying. And uh, whether that's the camaraderie we feel as a team or the exhilaration of flying, all of those things have, have been the same since we've started doing this. So you're the base commander i'm sure you're a very busy individual do you still get time to fly i do actually i'm a uh, qualified instructor pilot in the a10 and i fly generally twice a week uh sometimes the the schedule doesn't allow that i'll go down to one i do have a requirement uh in terms of how often i need to fly every month just to consider myself um basic mission qualified so a, an ability to still go out there and teach someone how to do the things that we do and um, oftentimes when you say instructor, people think like, well, are you teaching them to fly the A-10? Well, sometimes, oftentimes we're teaching them how to employ the A-10, uh, how to make sure that what you're doing with the sensors, the weapons are going exactly where you intended them to go. So a lot of our training is, it's less about the flying and it's more about the employment of the airplane. So let's, uh, so Mike, what's, what's one of the highlights of your career something that uh really stands out for you and uh your time in the military so it's interesting you know anybody who's served whether you're you know serving in a in a police fire military doesn't matter um there's always rough times um and i always look back to a you know a couple of couple of moments uh in my career that were just true highlights right i i just come back from a deployment and i got tapped to go on another one um so i knew i was gonna have about seven eight months at home uh, but during that time, um, 
I got the opportunity to introduce my wife and, and let her have lunch with the first lady of the United States, um, Michelle Obama. Yes, you know, so when you look back, you know, at, at kind of career highlight moments, you know, getting your spouse, getting your wife who has been raising children, working full time as a nurse, um, doing all of these wonderful things while I'm downrange, you know, playing with my friends, um, getting her the opportunity to get recognized for the sacrifices she's made. That's, that's an all time career highlight for me. Wow, I don't know anybody that could uh, <laughs> can, can claim that one. Yeah. That's uh, that's uh, that got you some uh, husband points. It huh? did, it did. Yeah, we still got that picture. Yeah, it was a big one. <laughs> Good deal. I think uh, Chief Ferger brought up a great point, and that's you know a question we oftentimes get get asked not only because of the the pace of the job we're in now, which is fairly relentless, but it's the you know why are you still doing this? Why are you still a part of the military? And I think it comes down to the the simple fact that he and I see as our, our role here is to serve. You know, we want to, to give back to this nation that's done so much for us and given us the, the freedoms and opportunities that we've had. We've, we, we feel a call to serve. And, and oftentimes we, we talk about the fact that, um, when someone tells you, thank you for your service, it's such a, such a great act. And we, we appreciate that more than anything else. And the desire is to be able to look back at that person and say, well, thank you for your service as well. And we oftentimes, we try to use our service and the opportunities these roles give us today to inspire others to serve. You know, I think it's when we think about um, service, oftentimes it's it's linked to the military. People think, you know, thank you for your service. The immediate thought is that you're thanking a military member for the time that they've spent both training or away from families. But in reality, there's so many people out there who are serving today that deserve thanks, whether you're talking about fire, police, first responders, Folks, that their very job, the very nature of what they do is to serve others in their community, others across the state and across the nation. And uh, I wish that, you know, as a, as a city, as a state, as a nation, we can take a, a look at service and realize that there's a call to service, I think, that extends across our nation that we can, we can start to try to inspire others that giving of yourself to something greater is such a great thing and it's something that... Uh, we need other people to to do, and oftentimes people ask us whenever we we talk about service. People will say, "Well, I'm I'm not in the military. I'm I'm not a firefighter. I'm not a police. I'm not a first responder. How can I serve?" And we we tell them, "Start small. Start in your in your house. How can you how can you serve your household?" You know, some of the young kids we talk to both at our local high schools and at the ROTC divisions at, at the University of Arizona. Uh, we talk about serving within the bubble they live in. Serve there first, and then as you change, as your service changes, that bubble can change sizes as well. We have a lot of folks serving the city of Tucson today, uh, whether as council members or in the the Pima County. All of those folks are serving today, and and as people want to serve, those opportunities are out there. You've just got to kind of search for them. I think that's a great point. Uh, just. You know the the desire to serve seems like it's uh, weaning away. It's it's diminishing, and and I think we need to push that more. And just like you said, start small. Do something to serve somebody else. Uh, any, small things, small gestures, and stuff, and then they can lead to bigger things. So that's a great uh, great point. And we appreciate that. What would you give advice for uh, young people that are considering the military? Can, I mean, you mentioned uh, earlier about joint joint operations and stuff and and those that are familiar with the military know that uh within the different branches we pick on each other uh and it's almost looks like we hate each other from the outside but but uh when it comes to working together we're it's almost seamless it seems uh but 
What can you give us for advice uh, for somebody that's considering uh, a career in the military? The best advice I can give is that uh, we're our own worst enemy when it comes to some of our advertising with respect to some of the movies you'll go find today. If you if you go watch a movie about the military, I think you're seeing a uh, a very skewed mirror. Uh, and not a great viewpoint of what the military is all about. And, and ultimately, again, the military is about service and about giving. And um, what I would tell them is to, to get more information, to talk to someone they know. And if they don't know anyone in the military, we have a lot of great recruiters around Tucson who are able to provide information on all of the different services. And if that doesn't help, then davis Monthan Air Force Base, we have outreach programs that try to get us out there so that people can see what the military is all about. And, you know, across davis Monthan, we have members of every single uh, component of the Department of Defense serving. So we can provide examples of, of what they would be doing and where they can do it. And ultimately, it's, it's just a great opportunity to give back, to be a part of something greater, to be a part of a, just an amazing team. Nobody starts a career wanting to be mediocre. If you want to start a career to be outstanding and to be in the top 1% of any career field, then the military is a great place to do that. Uh, it's great. Uh, you can learn a craft. You can learn a skill. Um, you know, college isn't for everybody. And uh, for me, uh, when I was 17 years old, I knew I wasn't going to college. And I was probably going to head down a bad path. And uh, it was the military. Going in the Marine Corps for me was uh, was kind of straightened me out, got me on a path, and ended up in a career in law enforcement. So it complete uh, 180 degrees for me. So that worked out really well. Yeah, it's one of those things. There's... There's really no other industry, you know, there's no other business that, that will take a fresh 17, 18, 19-year-old kid off the street um, and invest them with really exquisite skill sets. Like, whatever craft you're going to do and whatever service you're going to do, we are going to train you to be the absolute best in the world at it. And we're going to pay you fairly well. Nobody gets rich serving in the military, at least you shouldn't. Um, but, but we're going to have a place to live. You're going to have good food to eat. You're going to be surrounded by like-minded people just like you and you're going to have whether you serve one stint or do 30 year career um you're going to leave a better person yeah i've the friends i met in the marine corps back uh over 30 years ago we're still friends today so uh like said lifelong lifelong uh friendships that uh, get created from that so anything else you want to well the opportunities to serve that we talked about uh especially in the military is realizing that you Going to talk to a local recruiter, there's so many different ways that you can become a part of this force, this amazing force. And we have branches that are not only active duty, which you can join through you know, your local recruiters, the United States Air Force Academy, our Reserve Officer Training Corps, or uh, ROTC within the universities, our Officer Training School, and then finally our Air National Guard and our Reserve. There's so much opportunity to be a part of this incredible team that we have. And uh, if folks are interested in that, there's no limit in terms of you know what you want to do in life. There is a way to get towards that by joining the military. Great. So uh, final thing, real quick, we have less than a minute. Uh, are there any youth outreach programs that you got going on right now that uh, can start them down that path? So right now we're doing a thing um, called Starbase. Um, it's, it's run through our force development flight on base, um, and it's, it's basically teaching STEM to, to third great kids um that program's expanding and i guess just getting people interested in in more than more than they thought they could be interested in um teaching them science teaching them math um and teaching them the practical applications of it sounds great well appreciate you being here uh, colonel scott mills uh chief uh, chief uh, 
Master Sergeant Mike Becker, <laughs> sorry. And uh, appreciate you being here and talking about Davis Moth and our neighbors down there. And uh, this has been Law Matters, and we appreciate you being here on 1030 The Voice.